Morning Hope wanted to start with a little bit of a pick-me-up movie clip. <laughs> so good to see you all uh, this weekend. Last weekend I teased you. The only reason you were here is because you had an extra hour of sleep, but man, you showed up. This is awesome. So uh, that's a clip from a classic American film based on a classic American novel written by John Steinbeck. Uh, the, the story is called East of Eden. Steinbeck wanted to write kind of a modern-day retelling of the biblical account of Cain and Abel. And so James Dean becomes this Hollywood icon. This is his breakout role. He portrays Cal, uh, a young man who is kind of living a tortured existence, wanting to do whatever he needs to do to earn his father's love and approval. And in that scene we just watched, he's basically trying to buy his father's love and approval. Now, one of the critiques that the film adaptation of the book gets is they leave out one of the central, some people think the most important characters in the novel is this Chinese housekeeper. Her name is Lee, and she doesn't even make an appearance in, in the movie. And so Cal and his brother Aaron have this kind of intense sibling rivalry. They're largely raised by Cal, and at one point in the story, uh, they're largely raised by Lee. At one point in the story, Lee has uh, to sit down with Cal and tries to teach him something about a Hebrew word, a Hebrew phrase, a Hebrew idea. It's the phrase timshel. It shows up in the Cain and Abel account in Genesis 4, verse 7. We'll put it up on the screen, and let's read this out loud together. Read it with me. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you, but you must subdue it and be its master. So the Hebrew behind the phrase, you must subdue it, is the Hebrew word timshel. Most often gets translated in our English Bibles, thou shalt. Thou shalt. Like this is a command from God. The whole point of kind of our spiritual life is to get to a place where we've mastered the temptations in our life so that we no longer sin. That's Timshel. Thou shalt master your sort of uh, temptation to sin. But as Steinbeck writes in the novel in just this real masterful way, uh, Lee, who is this Chinese immigrant and is part of this Chinese immigrant community that in the 1800s, early 1900s, was their labor largely responsible for some of the westward expansion of this country, they come to this new country and they get introduced to a new religion. Christianity, the Bible, the God of the Bible, and this guy, Jesus Christ, and they're trying to make sense of it. And, and for her community, Lee's community, a big part, the key that would unlock all of scriptures is this idea of Timshel. Does it really mean thou shalt? Is it really this order, this command from God? Or is there a better way, a more nuanced way of understanding what this idea is all about. And so Steinbeck writes, they do all of this research and study and they talk with rabbis to try to figure out what's the best way, the most accurate way to interpret this word timshul. And what they discover is, uh, better than saying thou shalt, probably the most accurate way to translate the idea would be thou mayest. Thou mayest. And so Steinbeck goes off on this and just says, the, the idea that gets set up at the very beginning pages of the scriptures is God gives all of us a choice. We're not doomed. We're, we're not like, uh, you know, this is the way life is going to go. These are the cards that we were dealt and now just deal with it. But every single one of us gets a choice. There are certain ways, certain paths that we can take in life. One path would be the path of, I don't know, jealousy and anger and sort of bitter resentment. And that's the path that Cain takes. That's the path that Cal takes in this movie. 
It's kind of a tight-fisted, closed-fisted way to live. Cal gets into a lot of fist fights in this story because it's kind of the way he's living his life. But that's not the only option in front of us. There's another way of life. There are multiple other ways of life. There could be a life where instead of being jealous at the success of others, instead of being uh, jealous of the success of your siblings, you actually celebrate it. Like if you're a fan of the Iowa Hawkeyes and your team has lost three in a row, you don't really worry about that. You just celebrate what's going on up in Ames. You could be that kind of person. You could be that. It, it takes, you know, God's face and grace at work in your life to become that kind of a person. But that's, that's a way of life you could choose. <sighs> anyway, uh, you could also choose to live this life of, you know, uh, contented, peaceful kind of spirit. Uh, a heart that is generous. A heart that is trusting. There's, a, there's a more than one way to live our life. Steinbeck sets it up as what choice are you going to make? I think it's deeper than even what choice we have to make. So I think part of what's going on in the Cain and Abel story in this idea of Timshul, just like in our last message series, Which Way to the Promised Land, God says to Moses and the people of Israel, there's a promised land for you. Timshul carries this idea, there's a promised life for you. There's a promised life that God has for you. And what we see consistently from cover to cover in the Bible is a God who invites us beckons us, calls out to us, hey, come on, let's go this way. Hey, follow me. I got this whole new way of life, this brand new way of life for you to experience and for you to enjoy. Jesus shows up on the scene and he starts doing this, follow me, follow me into this whole new way of life. Probably the most well-known verse in all of scripture is John 3 verse 16. We'll put it up on the screen. Read this out loud with me. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Part of what Jesus is doing here, he's trying to answer the question, who is God? Who, who is the God that the Bible is pointing us to? And, and what Jesus believes to be true about God, you could put it this way, God is a God who gives out of love. God's a God who gives out of love. That's who God is. Last week we talked about the importance of the lens through which we're kind of viewing our life, our existence, our relationships, our faith, our God, how important it is to have the right lens on so that we see clearly. Part of what Jesus is doing in John 3.16 is saying, here's the right lens through which to think about all of your life. God is a God who gives out of love. And if we look at the stories of Scripture, if we look at the teachings of Scripture, if we look at the encounters that Jesus has with people through this lens, God's a God who gives out of love, it starts to inform how we answer the question, who do I believe God is? It starts to, I think, change the way we interpret some uh, very familiar stories in the Bible, like Matthew chapter 25 a story you're probably familiar with, sometimes called the parable of the talents. Jesus says, I'm telling this story to help you get an idea of what the kingdom of God is like, what the kingdom of heaven is like. Tim Shell, thou mayest enter into this kind of life, this, this kingdom kind of life. And Jesus says, here's what it's like. It's a real wealthy guy who's going on a journey, and before he leaves, he entrusts his money to three of his servants. One guy, he gives five talents. Another guy, two talents. The third servant, he gives one talent, which doesn't mean a whole lot to us because we don't know what talents are. What's a talent? In Jesus' day, most people were day laborers. Most people were day laborers. You would uh, sign up to work for this farmer or in this field or to do uh, this particular task. Whatever you did during the course of that day, at the end of the day, they would pay you for an honest day's work. And what they would give you is a small coin called a denarius. 
That was the amount of pay that someone would get for one day's work, a denarius. It takes 6,000 denarii to equal one talent. So here's another way of thinking about it. If you work six days a week and then take the Sabbath day off, you work 50 weeks out of the year and then you take two weeks to go to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover or Festival of Booths or whatever it is. You work 300 days out of every year, it would take you 20 years to earn 6,000 denarii to earn one talent. 20 years. Jesus in this story is saying the master entrusts the servants with 100 years of pay, 40 years of pay, and 20 years of pay. And then the master leaves and says, I'll see you when I come back. The first two guys with the 100 years of pay and the 40 years of pay, they take what has been entrusted to them and they double it. When the master comes back, this is what the master says. It's on the screen. Let's read this out loud together. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small amount, so now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. I don't know what you make in a year, but if somebody gave me 100 years of pay and then told me it's a small amount... I would think they were crazy. What, what's Jesus talking about in this story? Remember, he sets it up by saying, this is what the kingdom of God is like. This is what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's like living the kind of life where you think 100 years of pay, 100 years of salary is a small amount. And I don't think he's just talking about money or finances or material possessions. I think he's talking about life in general. There's this great big life that I'm inviting you into. You have no idea. It's beyond anything you can imagine. But I'm inviting you into it, and if you would come into it, you would start experiencing the kinds of things that would make you think, <laughs> money, it's like nothing. There's something more, something beyond that I have for you. First, you guys take what has been entrusted to them. They double it. The master wants to celebrate. Let's have a party. The third servant, who's been given one talent, 20 years of pay, buries it in the ground, buries his talent, hides his talent. Why? Well, he tells us, Master, I knew you were a harsh man, harvesting crops you didn't plant and gathering crops you didn't cultivate. I was afraid I would lose your money, so I hid it in the earth. It's the story of the talents in Matthew chapter 25. What's Jesus' point? Why is he telling this story? Is it possible one of the reasons he's telling the stories, our understanding of who God is greatly impacts how we live? If Jesus wants us to believe this is who God is, God is a God who gives out of love, and then he tells this story about a master. The master represents God. The servants represent us. This master entrusts all of his wealth to his servants. He gives it to them out of love, Jesus wants us to believe. Seems like the first two guys believe this. Here's this guy who loves me so much, who trusts me so much, who believes in me so much. He's given me all these incredible things, and he's going to sit back and watch what cool things I might do with what's been given to me. And so they get creative and they do awesome things and they invent and it's just amazing what they're able to do. And then God throws, let's have a party. Let's celebrate this. And the third servant has a very different idea about who the master is, about who God is. A harsh man, not a loving man. Someone to fear. Someone who is punishing. Think about what the third servant misses out on 
because he has a mistaken understanding of who God is. Our understanding of who God is greatly impacts how we live, and so that's an important question to ask ourselves on a pretty regular basis. Who do I really believe God to be? I mean, we know the verse, John 3, 16. God's a God who gives out of love. Do we believe that? Does it impact the way we live our lives? God's a God who gives out of love. It's an important question to ask, but there are certain times in our life when we're going through certain kinds of circumstances, I think it becomes even more important. I want to introduce you to a guy from our congregation. His name is Dan Peterson. And as you watch Dan's story, keep this question in the back of your mind. Who do I believe God is? Take a look. My name is Dan Peterson. We have polycystic kidney disease in our family. My mother's had a transplant, my brother's had a transplant, and my sister has a disease and multiple cousins. My wife made me go get a physical when I turned 40, and that's my doctor here in Ankeny. She's like, well, we'll just do a blood test. She says, if in the family, it'll show up. And of course, the one thing that showed on my blood test was my crap was out of whack, so then they send you a nephrologist. I remember the first time I went to a nephrologist, and I'm sitting beside somebody who's got oxygen, another guy, a lady in the wheelchair, and I'm a 40-year-old man, and I feel fine. I walked in, I said, I don't need to be here. I mean, I almost got up, I was so angry, I almost got up and left. You get kind of depressed and mad at the same time. You're like, I shouldn't be here. These are the sick people. And then they start reviewing everything with you, and you're like, well, I guess I got a couple things wrong with me. A few bad parts, as they say. Once they find it on a physical, when you get older, and you know your goose is cooked. They send you up there to get on the transplant list because it's three days of testing to see even if you qualify. The final meeting at the end of the three days, I'm sitting there and she's like, well, your, your kidneys are failing. And I was like, well, we know that. She says, there's something seriously wrong with your heart. And I says, do you have any good news? And she says, no, we don't. And I was kind of like, holy cow. And that's how my meeting went at the end. And she says, well, you got to come back. You don't qualify you got to go see a heart, heart person right away. I had to do a heart surgery before I could even qualify to get on the kidney transplant list. I was born with a bad aortic valve. 1.5% of the population is born with it, and I didn't even, I knew I had a murmur, but I didn't think anything of it, so then my aorta was enlarged. So I had to go through all that because they said I wouldn't live through a transplant surgery, and I said, well, how the heck am I gonna live a heart surgery? And they're like, oh, we got your heart ready for that, so don't worry about that. So it was, uh, I had to go through a lot in order to get to where I'm at now. When I came back from Mayo after my initial testing and got all the bad news or whatever, and they laid everything out, kind of threw me for a whirl, you know, you know, you got an eight-year-old at home, and all of a sudden, you know, they tell you there's something wrong with your heart, possible aneurysm, your kidneys are shot, you know, and you're like, holy cow, it's like, what, what do I do, you know? So here's a guy whose kidneys are shot, he goes up to be tested to see if he can get a, a kidney transplant, and they tell him, you're so sick, you're going to need to have heart surgery before you're healthy enough to even be tested to see if you qualify for a kidney transplant. That's a pretty important time in your life where the answer to the question, who do I believe God is, it really matters. 
And, and so after worship, one weekend after that experience, Dan came up and asked for prayer because he wants to believe God is a good God. God is someone to trust and, and faithful and a God who gives out of love, but he's having a hard time believing that in the moment. I, I don't know what circumstances you're going through right now, but do you really believe that God is a God who gives to all of us out of love? I want to dig into that question, and then we'll get back to Dan's story a little bit later on in the message. Luke chapter 21 uh, begins with a story many of us are familiar with, uh, sometimes referred to as the story of the widow's might. I'll start in verse 1. While Jesus was in the temple, he watched the rich people dropping their gifts in the collection box. Then a poor widow came by and dropped in two small coins. I tell you the truth, Jesus said. This poor widow has given more than all the rest of them, for she has given a tiny part, for they have given a tiny part of their surplus, but she, poor as she is, has given everything she has. Any of you heard that story before? Not even one person. Two people. All right. We've got some work to do on biblical literacy around here. So anyway, you didn't know I really wanted you to raise your hand. Um, a lot of times we hear that story in the context of sacrificial giving. When it comes to giving to God, giving to the church, we, we read this story, and a lot of times people like me, uh, people who are teachers, will point to this as Jesus is lifting up this poor widow as an example of sacrificial giving. We're supposed to give until it hurts like this widow. Is that what the story is about? If it is what the story is about, it's going to inform how we answer the question, who do I believe God is? Now all of a sudden it seems like God cares about money more than anything else. And God wants me to give, even if it means I don't have anything to live off of. Even if it means no, no money for food and clothing and shelter, what God wants is for me to give to him or to give to the church or to give to God's work in the world. That's what's going to be lifted up and, and celebrated. And if that's who we believe God is, that will impact how we interpret a passage like Matthew 25. I better do what God wants me to do or else. And then we start living kind of like Cal does in East of Eden. I have this closed-fisted, scarcity kind of mindset that if I don't do what God wants me to do, and it's all about me doing, me doing, me doing, then God's going to punish me. And the religious world of Jesus' day had devolved into that kind of reality. If you wanted to be great in the religious world of Jesus' day, it was about your performance. How well do you know the scriptures? How... how perfectly do you obey the commandments of the scriptures. And the better you do at that, the better you're going to be able to kind of withhold the vengeful, wrathful, punishing nature of God. That's who people believed God was. And it's what was taught to the people by the religious leaders. Jesus shows up on the scene and starts pointing to a different reality, a different kind of God. And it was confusing to everyone, but particularly to the religious leaders who they saw Jesus teaching something completely different than what they were teaching the people about who God is. If you turn the page back from Luke 21 to Luke 20, you start to see all of these questions that the religious leaders have for Jesus. Whose son is the Messiah? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? If I'm married more than one time on earth, who am I going to be married to in heaven? And on and on and on it goes. Jesus, who gave you the right to do what you are doing? And so finally, Jesus decides, enough of the questions, uh, let me give you a statement to think about. I'll start in verse 45 of Luke 20. Then with the crowds listening, Jesus turned to his disciples and said, beware of these teachers of religious law, for they like to parade around in flowing robes and love to receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplaces, and how they love the seats of honor in the synagogues and in the head table at banquets. 
Yet they shamelessly cheat widows out of their property and then pretend to be pious by making long prayers in public. Because of this, they will be severely punished. Jesus blasts the religious establishment of his day. And then he sees a couple of, uh, he sees this widow coming in to put her offering in the temple. These people who have been lifting themselves up, and I don't care who I hurt or who gets uh, mistreated along the way as long as I'm respected and honored, they shamelessly cheat widows out of their property, Jesus says, and he sees this woman and he points at her and she says, he says, she's exhibit A of this corrupt and disgusting religious reality going on in my day. How dare anyone dehumanize another person so they are treated so harshly and so callously and then dare to say, I'm doing it in the name of God. And Jesus is like, we got to tear this whole thing down. The disciples don't quite know what to do. They're like, I don't know what you're talking about, Jesus, but look at this building. Isn't the temple kind of cool? Isn't this architecture kind of neat? Jesus says, yeah, the time is coming when all these things will be completely demolished. Not one stone left upon another because the temple represents this corrupt, disgusting religious institution that doesn't love people, but it abuses people. And so we're going to tear the buildings down, Jesus says. So we're in a giving campaign looking to build uh, more buildings. (laughs) Want to add about 20,000 square feet that we think will help us carry out our mission to reach out to the world and share the everlasting love of Jesus Christ. If you feel any pressure or guilt to give to this campaign, if you have unanswered questions or confused in any way about what we are doing and why we are doing it, I just hope you know you have freedom not to give. God loves a cheerful giver. Each of you must decide in your own hearts what to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. God loves a cheerful giver, and so do we. If I've done anything, said anything, that causes you to feel like this is a thou shalt give, then I have not done my job. This is an invitation. And we've been asking you to take about 40 days to pray and to ask God to show you if or what or how God's asking you what to do with what God has entrusted to you for the sake of the mission of this church. It's an invitation. It's a thou mayest. It's a timshel kind of moment for us. God is a God who gives out of love. God's a God who gives out of love. He wants to fill us with that love. He wants us to know that love more and more all the time. Even though we're never going to understand it completely or fully, we can understand it more and more all the time. And as we do, that starts to change us. We become people who follow the movement of God in our lives. We become people who give to the world around us because of the love that's been freely given to us. So I talked a little bit about Dan Peterson's story a little bit earlier, this guy who comes up for prayer because he needs a new kidney, but he can't get a kidney until he has a a heart surgery. He comes up for prayer after service one day. And now I want to introduce you to another woman in our congregation. Her name is Ann Peterson. That's right. Dan Peterson and Ann Peterson, not related in any way. Here's part of Ann's story. I'm Ann Peterson. I don't, we're not related. I was mobilized to Fort Bliss in El Paso, Texas for a year. And when you're somewhere out of your element, you really need to <laughs> lean into your faith. And there was um, a full time active duty soldier who said, you know what, I sing in the choir in my church. Do you want to join me? 
And I said, absolutely. I was just looking for something. And so, yeah, I um, joined him at his church and it filled my soul. And so when I came back and when Hope opened up a, a, a new branch in Ankeny, I took the girls and we headed there and then we grabbed Dad and we brought him on board. And, uh, you know, if you get the kids, you get, <laughs> you get everybody. My mom was a firm believer in prayer, and that has been a, it's the cornerstone of, of my life. So at the end of each worship service, typically um, you or Pastor Eli announces that there are prayer team um, available at the front of the church. You know, sometimes we tend to cluster at the foot of the cross because we say prayer partners, or, but sometimes we try to spread out. And so I was actually, farther on the other side of the church, kind of waiting for somebody to come up for prayer, and, and nobody really approached me, and I turned and I saw that Dan was with the team. And I thought, well, I know Dan, so I'm gonna run over and, and pray with him since no one's come up. So I just kind of ran up to the to the group and touched his elbow and put my arm around the prayer partner, and, and we prayed. Later in the week, as I'm um, on my knees praying, all sorts of things you know I'm, I'm praying for Dan and I also tend to pray for God to show me those things that keep me from being who he intends me to be and help me to sacrifice those things that that keep me from from loving him completely and so as I'm praying the message was I gave you two good kidneys and so my reaction to that was, maybe this is a message for John. <laughs> and so, um, so I went downstairs and I said, you know, John, I don't know if this is a message for you or for me, <laughs> but maybe we should consider kidney donation for Dan. And he said, you know what? I was thinking the same thing. So part of the process is going online and answering this questionnaire and as I went through the questions it became very apparent that if you had a history of kidney stones you were not an eligible donor or at least you wouldn't be like the first donor option and my husband has a very significant history of kidney stones and so I thought okay this was a message for me she's praying for Dan to have a successful heart surgery so that he can be on the transplant list she's praying for uh, that transplant to happen for a donor and the message she gets from God while she's praying, I gave you two good kidneys. I gave you two good kidneys. Now, uh, so Anne is going to go and get tested to see if she can give a kidney to Dan. Anne's not doing it out of pressure or guilt. Uh, she's doing it out of who she is. Giving flows out of who we are and who we are flows out of who we believe God to be. Who do we believe God is? What are you going to do with what has been entrusted to you. This is the way God wants Christians to think. This is the way God wants the church to think. What am I going to do with what's been entrusted to me? And part of what that means is the church is supposed to be countercultural. The church is supposed to act in ways that the rest of the world kind of look at and shake our heads and go, that seems ridiculous. Church is supposed to be countercultural, but too many times you can't tell the difference between somebody who's following after Jesus and somebody who has no interest in following after Jesus. That's not the way it's supposed to be. The world will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another, Jesus says. Can we become people who give to the world around us because of the love that has been given to us? That we would become more and more generous 
open-handed instead of tight-fisted people all the time. That's the goal. That's the hope. That's why we do a giving campaign. Yes, we're looking to build a physical building, but that's kind of a short-term goal to a giving campaign. Uh, next week, we are going to ask you, it's going to be the end of about 40 days where you've been thinking about this and listening to God, and so we're going to give you the opportunity, one-time gifts or three-year pledges, and we'll set up a booth in the back if you want to sign up to donate an organ to be harvested, and you can give that money to... No. We're not going to do that. That would be completely missing the point. And please hear me on this. This isn't a sermon to say, man, if she can give her kidney, what are you waiting for? No. What, what are you gonna, God talks to each of us differently. God talks to each of us differently. How's God talking to you? Are you listening? And, and do you hear it as this invitation? Thou mayest give in response to what God has given you. So here's our giving goals. Victory goal would be $4 million. If this church gives $4 million in one-time gifts or three-year pledges next weekend, we're going to celebrate, we're going to have a party, a hootin' nanny, and we're going to praise God for what God is up to and, the, uh, and just the incredible generosity of this congregation. And then we'll put the $4 million in the bank because that won't be enough to uh, build what we believe we need to build. We want this to be a debt-free campaign. We're not taking out any more loans to uh, build buildings. We, we're just going to, whatever the congregation gives, will determine what we can do and when we can do it. Dream goal is $5 million. That will enable us to start moving dirt sometime you know, early next spring. Uh, $5 million would get us started, but we would not be able to finish the lower level, some other things that we would not be able to do. The miracle goal, which would be God absolutely showing off, would be $6 million, and that would enable us to do everything we need to do, including additional parking and a, a wraparound driveway and all the audio, video, lighting uh, stuff that we need, uh, finishing the basement, all that stuff. So Again, I think these are short-term goals. The long-term goal of a giving campaign is for God to change us into the right kind of people, God's kind of people, people who are more and more generous all the time, who give out of love for the world around us. That's our mission. It's the mission of the church from the beginning. Uh, Jesus, when he sends out his disciples to start announcing the good news of the kingdom, he gives them very specific instructions in Matthew chapter 10. Let's read this verse out loud together. Go and announce to them, that the kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cure those with leprosy, and cast out demons. Give as freely as you have received. Give as freely as you have received. Do you ever stop and think what this world might be like if the church of Jesus Christ actually started to do this? Give as freely as we have received. And, and this is the hope. This is the vision. This is what Jesus is asking us to do, how Jesus is asking us to live. What does it look like for you in your life? What does it look like for us as a congregation to give as freely as we have received? As you think about that, uh, here's the rest of the story of Dan and Ann Peterson. Take a look. You know, once I was the goal for the heart surgery, I was like, holy cow, you know, I, you never know. You're always afraid something's going to happen. And that's in the back of your mind. You can have all the faith in the world, but you're always second-guessing. Well, i got to make sure everything's ready for my wife and my daughter. That threw me for a loop. When you're sitting down alone writing all this stuff down and you gotta review it with your wife and it's not much fun. Then you tell your daughter at night, you know, you, know, you always tell your kids you love them at night and you put them to bed, just, you know, well I know dad, you know. I get tired of hearing that every single night before you're going for heart surgery. And I'm like, I really want you to know that, you know, and it, that, that, that really threw me. When I went up with the prayer partners with Ann, and 
I just, after I did that, it was just like it took the world, well, it took, just took a lot of it, just threw it off my shoulders. It's like, okay, you got other things. And you got the strength of the Lord behind you, and friends and family, and the way people stepped up and helped, and it's amazing. I mean, the heartfelt generosity of people, and I was stunned. You know, I mean, how do you ask somebody to man? Some of your organs, you know, I just, I just want one, you know, I'm just gonna borrow it, you know. It's, it's very, very hard and the guilt that goes with it and everything. And when she called Mitzi, my wife, who was gonna go up and get tested, she's like, you know, Mitzi, you need to think about this. She said, you're gonna have surgery, your husband's gonna have surgery, and you got a young kid at home. She's like, I need to go first. Off I went to Rochester for three days of testing. And at this point, I have no doubt that I, I just never once did I think I wouldn't be a match. Um, so I get up there, <laughs> the first three people I meet with, the first person I, I think was a social worker by trade, and she's the donor advocate. So she's she doesn't know anything about Dan. If I need anything, she's my advocate. She's gonna go to bat for me. She says, you know, this is a surgery you don't have to have. I know. The next person, the next two people, you know, this is a surgery. You know. I thought, do these people want to give me kidney or not? Well, then I meet with a psychologist, and there's this whole psychosocial side that I really hadn't considered. And my family has a very significant history of depression and this type of thing. And so then I start really having some concerns. And that's when you ask God, really? Really? You know, you've given a sermon before on faithful versus foolish. <laughs> and so I'm like, hmm. Um, I'm sitting in this waiting room and I'm praying, God, really, is this, is this really where I'm supposed to be? My mom's favorite song was an instrumental piece, Music Box Dancer by Frank Mills. She was killed in a car accident when I was 14 years old. Um, she was killed by a drunk driver. And we played that music as the recessional of her funeral. Overhead music was playing very quietly in this waiting room. And as I'm praying, that song came on. And you know, that, that piece of the Holy Spirit that just fills you up and you know that everything's gonna be okay. So there was a huge message for me that you're, on, you're where you're meant to be. I get home and on Sunday, I called and left a message on Mitzi's phone and I just said, we're a go. Um, you know, give me a yep. call. And, and I called her back that night. And I just never forget it. And she's like, well, I'm, I'm a match. I'm a ghost. She's like, well, you don't know? Well, I just no. I just I don't know anything because, you know, they don't they won't share any you know, private information. She's like, they didn't tell you anything? And I says, absolutely not. And my daughter was in the background. And she heard I got to have a kidney. And she goes, well, that's good news, Dad. You get to live now. And I, and I says, well, leave it to an eight-year-old to put it in such certain terms like that. You said once that your kidney disease actually saved your life because they wouldn't have found the valve problem. Nope, I would have been dead in a couple years. So, polycystic kidney disease saved my life. Uh, that's the way it works in the kingdom of God. What's up is down, and what's down is up. 
Uh, when we were sitting down with Dan and Ann asking, you know, can we share this story, one of the questions Dan had was, well, when are you going to do it? And I said, I'd like to do it the weekend of uh, November 10th and 11th. He said, well, the surgery is scheduled for the 13th. How about we wait till after the surgery and just make sure everything goes okay? I said, well, we could do that. Or you could have 2,000 people praying for you on Tuesday. He said, yeah, that sounds okay too. So let's stand up and let's, uh, let's have a word of prayer. Would you pray with me, please? So first of all, Lord, we thank you for your great love for us. A love that you gave to us so that we could know a whole new kind of life, eternal life, the very best kind of life on this earth, life forever with you uh, because of Jesus. We thank you for that life. We, we want to uh, say yes to your invitation to follow you into that kind of life. And we thank you for this story of Dan and Ann and, and the way uh, they are getting to experience that kind of life uh, because of your love and because of your faithfulness. We pray for each of us that you would, you would give us the, the ability to ask that question, who do I really believe God is? And am I willing uh, to give in response to what God has entrusted to me? Help us figure out how that all works, how to become people marked by our generous love more and more all the time. We can't do it on our own. We need your help, and so we ask for the ability to know your love in deeper and deeper ways all the time. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, let's sing about that love right now.